I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. You say, why are you reading from Acts? Well, we are going into a series that the pastor is going to lead us in Psalms, but when you read the book of Acts, you notice that Peter, particularly in his early sermons, quotes a lot from the Psalms, a little bit here and there from Isaiah and Joel and a few of the prophets, but he seems to love the Psalms. And there are several Psalms that are mentioned in this passage. So we are going to be reading um, from verse 1 through to verse 31 of Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Isn't that wonderful? 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? This was a re reference to the healing of the, of the lame man, you'll remember. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they've performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And on their release, then Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power, will, power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would empower our pastor now to share what is on his hearts from your word that our lives might be touched. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Rob. If you have your Bibles opened, you'll notice that um, the, the part in that reading that was in italics, there were two quotes from the Psalms. The first was a quote from Psalm 118, and the second one um, was a quote um, from Psalm 2, as, as we'll see today. And if you've got a Bible open, you will have seen that, I guess, in, you will have seen that in the footnotes. So if you've got a Bible open, let's have it open at Psalm 2. Or it's on your phone or whatever. And we'll read it later on. But I want to start with this. There are two aspects um, of being right with God, um, with the Lord. There's two aspects of enjoying fellowship with the Lord. One is to be found in Christ. And salvation, being right with God, uh, and all that follows from being right with God is by grace through faith. Do you know that? Um, when you trust in Jesus' sacrificial death for you, um, and when you trust that his uh, righteousness, perfect righteousness, is imputed to you, um, then you are forgiven and you receive the Holy Spirit. So there's this definitive aspect of, of, of getting right with God, and it is by grace through faith, but then there is uh, this aspect of walking like Christ according to God's instructions in His Word, the Bible. And the key is to get them in the right order. And we saw that when we looked at covenant, didn't we? That God makes a covenant with his people. Uh, and the covenant that he makes is always by grace, um, always through faith. That's a covenant making. Um, we enter the covenant by grace through faith. But then there is a covenant keeping, a responsibility on, on our part to walk in it. Walk according to God's instructions, which of course we can't do without the help of the Holy Spirit. So it shouldn't surprise you that we're going to find these two aspects of being right with the Lord in the Psalms. And actually, we find them uh, in Psalms 1 and 2. 
One is about being, uh, one is about the blessing of, of being in Christ, and the other is about the blessing of walking um, according to God's word. So before I go any further, just you will have had two pieces of paper um, beside you this morning. Uh, one is the sermon notes, and if you've not been here before um, and you need the help with concentration, then the, the words in red um, are on the PowerPoint comes up uh, in the word search on the sermon notes. That's particularly since we've had the, the 14 pluses staying in the church, and that just helps them to, um, to engage with the sermon. So why look at the Psalms? The question we asked last week. Well, first reason, because the Psalms deal with our emotions and our affections. And an emotion we're defining for the moment as a feeling that arises in a given moment, and an affection is a settled love for something. Settled love for the Lord, or for his word, or for his people, or for your husband, or, or his wife, or even for some things that are inappropriate. An affection uh, is where your heart goes where your heart characteristically moves to. That's the difference we're making. And we just noted last week, and we won't go into it detail again, uh, the different response to emotions that you get in different kinds of churches. And so we're going to the Psalms to help us um, express our emotions, because the Psalms give us uh, permission to say all kinds of things in the presence of God. But they also they help order our emotions. Or actually, they order our affections. They teach us what to love and what to hate. So the Psalms help us put our emotions and our affections in the right place. But the Psalms are also like um, the Bible in miniature. That's another reason we're coming to them. And the five books of the Psalms relate broadly to different stages of Old Testament history. And here I want you to get your piece of paper out. There were two pieces of paper. Because in preaching, I want you to hear the Lord speaking to you this morning we trust that and we pray that as we come to his word and that you will be moved and changed this morning as you meet with God but uh, it's also our aim week by week is to equip you is to equip you to come to God's word um, for yourself and so here is my magnum opus on on the pattern of of the psalms Um, and um, I mean, let me confess, uh, uh, books by O. Palmer Robson and Christopher Rush um, com- combined uh, to draw this out. But I just think there's some helpful stuff here. And actually, as you're doing your home group studies, you might want to uh, have this uh, next to you. That's how I printed it out. But just to, just to look briefly at orientation in the Psalms, um, did you realize the Psalms are, are kind of um, divided into books? Um, books 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, if you, if you look in your Bible, um, right at the top of Psalms, it says book 1, which I think is part of the original text, and then it says Psalms 1 to 41, which I think is part of the NIV text. But there are, there are five books of the Psalms, and I think Palmer Robertson is right. That there's, a kind of, there's a kind of flow of thought um, across the Psalms. The first book is, they're nearly all David Psalms, And it's about confrontation. It's about David fighting for his enemies and asking for victory. Second book is different and and a bit harder to kind of pin down. Um, It's a psalms of communication, Palmer Robinson says. It's kind of David um, speaking out to the nations what they should do. Um, I'm not sure that's quite the right word. They're psalms of communication or maybe they're psalms of proclamation. They're David saying, this is my kingdom, now respond to it. 
Um, or maybe even vindication, because sometimes he prays that the Lord will vindicate him in front of the nations. But anyway, in the first, first part is David establishing his kingdom. The second part, I think, comes out of David's kingdom established. There's still warfare, still a fight going on, but with a call for the nations to acknowledge the Lord and a call for vindication. But book three is about devastation. Israel's been overpowered by her enemies until there's no king on the throne. Book four is about, Palmer Robinson says, maturation, in other words, growing up. So actually it's in the context of exile. God's people are going through a time of forced growth. In exile, there's no kings, no temple, no priest, no sacrifices. And the Psalms talk about trusting God as their king, God as their eternal king. And then book five, kind of consummation. They're psalms for the return from exile. They're psalms including the songs of a sense of, of going up as a, uh, to the new temple, quite probably. Psalms for returning from exile, but they anticipate uh, the final victory of the Lord's kingdom. So the psalms kind of give us the, the history of the kingdom, um, kind of about, you know, a whole chunk of the Old Testament that they relate to. But put that to the back for the moment. I guess the main reason we come into the Psalms is that they reveal Christ in a, new, in a unique way. They come out of this Old Testament, uh, David's kingdom context, and yet they speak about Jesus in a unique way. Uh, Jesus himself said that. Uh, he told the disciples to, uh, to, he taught them about what was written in him in the Psalms, if you look at the end of Luke. And we said last time, David was the Messiah. David was God's anointed king in his context, in his covenant context. And so he foreshadows Jesus. He's a deliberate God-given picture of the anointed one yet to come, which is Jesus. But also, so he foreshadows Jesus, but he also prophesies Jesus. So Peter on the day of Pentecost, uh, if you've still got your Bible open to Acts, you can go back a couple of chapters. Peter calls him a prophet. So David has this spirit of prophecy. David foreshadows Jesus um, and David prophesies Jesus and we find both in the Psalms. So we're looking into the Psalms expecting to be moved. I do want you to be moved by this Psalm today. Um, and we want to be changed and we want to be instructed and we want to see Jesus and know him better and respond to him more appropriately. Last time we looked at Psalm 1. Uh, the blessed person is the one who uh, delights in the Lord's law. And our initial response when we read that, um, this person is like a tree. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. They don't um, walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And I guess, I don't know what your res first response was. Sometimes it might have been dismay. You look at that and think, I, I can't do that. Who can do this? Who can earn this blessedness? And you say, not me. And maybe that's right. Or maybe it's even first response was disbelief. This is simply not true. Hang on a minute. And that person is like a tree, uh, a tree planted. Whatever they do prospers. How do we tie that in with Psalm 73, where the wicked do seem to prosper? Until we realize that the blessed man, of course, there's only one person who has done this uh, perfectly, that the blessed man of Psalm 1 uh, is Jesus Christ himself. And we are only counted sinners in God's eyes by the transfer of his perfect obedience to us. And then we can rejoice. And we can grow in our uh, proper affection for God's law. 
without fear. But how can we say, how can we say Psalm 1, maybe you left with this question last week, how can we say that Psalm 1 is, is a psalm about Jesus? Well, I guess to some extent we jumped the gun uh, a little bit because it becomes clearer that these two psalms about Jesus Christ, when we put them together, um, when we put Psalm 1 and 2 um, as a pair. And that's what we're going to do today. So Psalms 1 and 2 together, they form the gateway, the introduction to the whole of the Psalms. They, they are a deliberate introduction, the two Psalms together. They don't have titles, um, what we call the superscriptions, a little bit above the top, and that marks them out uh, as different from most of the rest of the book, because most of the rest of the book are by David and they're explicitly entitled. So there's something different about them. But what we have here is we have a law psalm, a Psalm 1, about the law, and we have a king psalm, a psalm about the Messiah, a psalm about the king. So Psalm 1 is the, is the law psalm. Psalm 2 is the king psalm. And Psalm 1 begins with a way to be blessed. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the step of the of wicked. And Psalm 2 ends with a way to be blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that's called in theological terms or in, or in uh, technical terms, it's called an inclusio. It's an idea that comes at an end, at the beginning, and the idea that comes at the end of something and it bookmarks the two together. Um, and, and joins them together and says that you are to take these two things together. And intriguingly, there, so there's this pair of a law psalm and a king psalm, and that happens twice more. If you've got your piece of paper, you can have a look as we go along. That happens twice more in the book of, uh, the book of psalms. Um, they, there's a law psalm and a king psalm, very significant psalms um, that divide book one, Psalms 18, 19, and divide book five, 118, 119. And those pairs stand in prominent positions in the Psalms. And what this is saying is that these two things go together. These two things are important. You need to know who is the king and have responded to the king. And you need to uh, walk in the law of the Lord. You need to love the law of the Lord. You need to be in Christ. And you need to be in the word. So let's get to Psalm Let's get to Psalm 2 and let's read it together. So hopefully you've got, you've got a Bible or you've got a phone. You've got something to read it. So one of the reasons that we, we can't read the Psalms as directly as speaking to us and about us is because there are bits when you do that that just don't fit. Um, and we're left with a kind of a subsalter. Um, we're, we're, left with a, we're left with an arbitrary um, selection. So Psalm 2, you can't read this about yourself. It doesn't really apply. But let's read it. So the, so the right response is to, first of all, read it as David's words, to read it um, in its original context. And when we do that, we find four things, which are summed up as, as four Ds. as a desire for freedom. Uh, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. Surrounding nations, they band together, they're grouping together 
um, against David, and by doing so, they're, they're banding together against the Lord because David is the Lord's anointed. They want their independence. They do not want to be under God's rule. The response is derision from heaven. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Can you imagine that? Nations gathering together against David. And what does the Lord do? He laughs. He mocks them in return. He scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them. Gosh, can you just begin to feel that? What must it be like to have the Lord, the creator, laugh at you and to mock you in return? What an awful thing. And then there is a declaration of, of kingship. So going to, looking at verse 6 again, uh, the Lord says, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. Sorry, excuse me. David, <clears throat> this is David's voice again in verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. The nations surrounding David, they made a profound mistake. Because, because behind the rule of David is the rule of the Lord. David is the Lord's king. God has installed him in Zion, in Jerusalem. To fight against David is to fight against the Lord. And so David here uh, re rehearses the decree that has been given to him and, and, and the kings in his line. That the Lord has said to them, the Lord has said to them, you are my son. You are my son. We've looked at the background in 2 Samuel 7, so I don't want to dig into that. Today, but if you see, that's the beginning of, of the covenant with David. We saw that in the covenant times. And the Lord said uh, to David's line, I will call him my son. And the Lord says to him, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. And in that same covenant context, 2 Samuel 7, David does that. He says, seeing as you've been so gracious to me, Lord, as to... Uh, as to call me your son, I, I, I will, I will ask and I pray. Um, now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight, Lord. Your, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. But there's a hint here, isn't there? This is going to be bigger than David. The Lord has promised that he will have the nations, but he's only, pro he's only promised him uh, the, the promised land. And here there's a little hint, isn't there, that, that God's plans go beyond the promised land, but we haven't got time to stop and look at it. And therefore there's a decision to be made. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son. Or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. 
for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So David turns and, and, and speaks to the nations an invitation and a warning. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule far from rebelling against his, his rule as it has been enacted in David. Celebrate his rule and kiss his son. In other words, come and bow down in, in homage to David with that, with that uh, kiss of, of serving somebody. Kiss the son. Or he, and that is, I think, the Lord, will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. If you don't kiss the son, it says to them, their way will lead. Ultimately, whatever the ups and downs are between, their way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. It is the Lord's prerogative to exercise his wrath. And, and, and in the time in which we live, we know from the parable of the wheat and the weeds that the Lord has in the main reserved his wrath uh, for judgment day. But it's his, it's his prerogative to show his wrath at the moment of his choosing. So we read the psalm in its original context. That You should always do that. Uh, whichever psalm you pick up and read, read it in the original context. What does this mean to David? What are God's people in that particular moment? And then once we know that, we can start to draw some lines between David, what it meant for David, and in David's context and David's covenant, where we can start to draw some lines. Um, what does that mean then? What is that saying uh, about David? And thankfully today we have, a, we have some explicit pointers. And Acts 4 really helps us out. Acts 4 takes two psalm quotes and applies them directly to Jesus. The one from Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the quote from Psalm 2. Did you notice it? Do you, do you get it now? Why did the nations compare and the people's pot in vain? It comes in the middle of that passage of Acts 4. And there's some of the key texts quoted um, in the New Testament. And what does it mean then, given that Acts 4 has linked this explicitly through to Jesus, this thing that happened to David um, has happened to Jesus too. What does it mean? What does that look like? Well, there's the same desire for freedom. The nations conspire. That's what, uh, that's what Acts 4 says. Herod and Pontius Pilate, Rome and Israel, plot to have Jesus crucified because they wanted to be rid of the rule of Christ over them. There must be, there still is, derision from heaven um, at that moment. Can you imagine that? Not sure I can get my head around that, that even then, uh, as Jesus has, uh, has stood trial, and even as, as God the Father sees God the Son go to the cross, there, I think there must be a sense in which God still in that moment laughs. Because he's satisfied that his plan is in place, that Jesus is being obedient um, even unto death. And it's not what some people have called cosmic child abuse, it's compassion of the highest order 
that God the Father should send the Son to a cross. So what happens for David has happened to Jesus. There is a declaration of kingship. So where the psalm says, I've installed my king in Zion, the temple in Jerusalem, we're told explicitly in, in Hebrews, is patterned after the heavenly throne room. And so after Jesus uh, goes to the cross and is crucified, he's ascended and he sits at the right hand of the Father in the real throne room in heaven. And Jesus himself says that, Luke 22, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And God has said to him explicitly uh, in his time, you are my son. He said it's at his baptism. This is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. And at the transfiguration, this is my son with whom I love with, with whom I'm well pleased. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So David, the anointed king, has prefigured Jesus the Messiah the ultimate anointed king. It's been a desire for freedom. There is derision from heaven. There is this declaration of, uh, of kingship that Jesus is, is the son of God. He's the one who can ask his father and is always heard. We talked about that last time. Jesus says, I know that you always hear me. Jesus is the only person who's always heard by the father on the basis of his own righteousness. And when we come to the Lord in prayer, we have to come through Christ and um, and in his righteousness. And specifically, Jesus was being invited to make the, the nations his inheritance and the ends of the earth um, his possession. And he has prayed that, and the Lord has said, has said yes to him. Interestingly, Satan gives him a counterfeit of that, doesn't he? Um, in, the, uh, in the desert, Satan says, if you come and worship me, I'll give you, I'll give you kingship over all the nations. Jesus knows the Father is the Father gives him that. It's counterfeit. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So God is answering that prayer of Christ. Even now, I guess. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery and he will. And so there was a decision to be made even in that moment of Herod and Pontius Pilate. And this was the decision they made. Crucify him. Crucify him. So we read it as David's words. Follow the lines that the New Testament has given us permission to do uh, to see how it applies to, to Christ. And now we can read it for ourselves. We can see what of the blessings of Christ overflow to us. What do we have in Christ that flows down to us? So let's read it again for ourselves with all the emotions that it's supposed to engender, a desire for freedom. 
It's one thing, isn't it, that the influencers of the world, big and small, agree on pretty much, is that they hate Christ. And they hate his people. From the little people of the nations to the kings and the influencers and the powerful people, they love to bash Christ and his church. They gather together. They band together. Yes, that's why it feels difficult to be a Christian. You're on the wrong end uh, of a whole load of mockery. And the Psalm's first response is, is not, it, when it says, why do the nations, it's not, oh my goodness me, why do the nations do that? It, it's, it's not a question, it's incredulity. Why do the nations, why do the nations um, conspire the people's plot in vain? Because it's bonkers. But it's not really surprise. Our response is to be unsurprised when we see this desire for freedom from the rule of God expressed in his son Jesus Christ. It, it's normal and it's natural for the sinful heart. And I guess as well, you're not surprised for that reason, but I guess you're not surprised too because you see it in your own heart. See echoes of it. Still floating around with desire. I don't really want to be ruled by Christ. There is still then derision uh, from heaven, I'm sure. The Lord is not phased by Donald Trump or Joe Biden in the White House or by Boris or by Kim Jong-un or by the G7 or by China or by Kanye West or Taylor Swift or whoever has the biggest Instagram account or the Kardashians or Stonewall who, who for, or, or ever. The Lord just looks on them and laughs. You think you're powerful? You think you're an influencer? You think you have control? They mock, but the Lord mocks in return. What must it be like? Have Almighty God scoff at you. Terrifying. Terrifying. We should be more than a little awed. Because the Lord has installed his anointed king, Jesus, to his right hand in his throne room in heavens. He has given him control over the nations. And there is a constant message, a constant rebuke going out to them. It's there in creation. There is a God. He exists. Look, look, look. It's there in, in, in suffering, the verse in uh, Revelation 9, which tells about God sending all these plagues, and it says, and still they didn't turn. So that message is going out every time they suffer, every time they have a downfall. Look, here. And it's there, of course, in the gospel every time somebody hears the gospel. There's a constant message going out. And of course, we live in the knowledge of the declaration of God's kingship uh, in his son, Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in the Lord's decree. Jesus is God's son, his installed king. He controls all things. And so we can rejoice in our king who turns the tables. He makes the powerful mighty. So he makes the weak powerful. And he makes the powerful weak. Lord loves to turn the table knowing that 
God hears us because our King Jesus is on his throne. And so there's a decision to be made. There's a warning to the, to the kings here, <clears throat> but from this little verse at the end about blessed are all who take refuge in him, we see that the, these curses and these promises, they flow down to the all at the end. They, they trickle down, as it were, to all who would respond one of two ways. There's a decision to be made. Fear the Lord. Celebrate his rule. That's what it says. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son. Or he will be angry. And your way will lead to discretion. That's, that's dreadful, isn't it? And so that applies to us now. <clears throat> Kiss the son. Come in willing homage to Christ. Make him your king. Make him your king. Or, the, or you will face the Lord's anger and your way will lead to your destruction. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in the end, one of the things that's been, I've been thinking about in, in recent weeks, maybe we'll come back to this another time, is that Christianity is not a lifestyle choice. It's not an arbitrary affiliation as, as if, well, I've got to decide if you're in Manchester, you, I've got to be a, a United guy or a City guy. And you say, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll choose the one. Christianity is not a lifestyle choice. It's not a choice between um, religions of, of equal measure. It is the one true description of reality. Christianity is the one true description of reality. And that encompasses all of history and all of science and all of the universe as it really is. <clears throat> and that is what is claimed here implicitly. Now the Lord is, is king over all things, all the nations. Christianity is about everything. Everything that exists and everything that, that happens. And so that is the context in which you have to decide what are you going to do? Are you going to kiss the sun? Have you kissed the sun? Have you come and have you bowed the knee? And as it were, kissed his hand and said, I make you Lord. And then you'll be blessed. Blessed with forgiveness, blessed with that promise of the Holy Spirit. Comes starts to make you new from the inside out. Because the alternative is that your way will lead to destruction inevitably. Or worse than that, you face the flare. The flare of God's anger. It can flare up in a moment. Our God is not safe. God is not an old biddy sitting on the throne. He is the creator who controls all things at all times. <clears throat> and you don't know. One thing I would think that the last year has shown you is you don't know the moment in which that will come. You really don't know the moment of your death. You really, really don't know when you might stand 
um, in, in front of the Lord and, and in front of Christ. It could be today, it really could. So what are you going to do? Are you going to kiss the sun? Are going to bow down before him? Maybe we need to do that anew and just maybe the bits of your heart, bits of your life got away. Maybe there are places where you, that, that temptation, that desire for freedom is kicking in and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. And you need to draw back in and, uh, and, and kiss the sun. Ultimately, Jesus will rule. Revelation 11. Seventh angel, angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. That's the ultimate reality that the world, the universe, and you and I are heading for. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Those who reject it, pictured in Revelation 19 as Babylon, it says the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's just... It's just terrifying, isn't it? The smoke from the destruction of those uh, who didn't kiss the sun is just going up uh, forever and ever. But for those who kiss the sun, we will rule with Christ. Jesus himself says this, Revelation 2. To the one who is victorious and who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Interesting. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Recognize that phrase now? Just as I've received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's pray. For, let's pray for ears that hear. And then we'll sing. Father God, we come before, this uh, come before you this morning as your people wanting to kiss the sun. Want to bow down before you and pay homage to Jesus Christ, our saviour, our rescuer. And Lord, we ask this morning that you help us not to do that simply as if it was a, a personal choice we made. But in the context of kissing the one who will inevitably, ultimately rule all things and is ruling even from heaven, even now. Help us see you in all your majesty, see you in all your terror. The God who mocks, the God who laughs those who oppose him because you know that it is pointless. Help us see you like that and bow down and kiss the sun in renewed gratitude. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.